Engaging Leader, episode 177, Meaningful Work, How to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your and Your Employees' Soul. Featuring Sean Askinosi, CEO of Askinosi Chocolate. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Well, this is going to be a little bit of a different type of interview. For one thing, it's going to be longer than our typical interview. And I know some listeners will probably want to just listen to the first 30 minutes and take away some of the stuff, the practical things that Sean and I talk about in the first 30 minutes, and that's fine. But I'll bet there's listeners who are going to approach this the same way I did, that this is a different kind of topic and it's worth digging into deeper. This book is different than a lot of the books that we feature on Engaging Leader. We often choose books because and, and guests because we're aware of the guests or their work or there's something about the topic that we just feel like that is really important for our listeners to hear. We haven't talked about that topic in a while or this is something new and important. And that's all true, I guess, about this book by Sean Askinosi. But more than anything else, when I heard about the book, it just sounded like a great story. It sounded like something that I wanted to know more about. I had immediate curiosity and I wanted to just find out about the story and then find out how to apply what Sean has learned and practiced into my own life and business. And it's not a tidy little topic like here's five quick things to make a big difference. It's a little more about soul searching work sort of doing the hard work to figure out how to be fulfilled by your work and help your team members be fulfilled by the work too. And to figure out how can you take the economic reasons for doing your business and also go beyond that to help make the world a better place. So that we end up working with a team that's engaged in a place where we can feel fully alive and contribute to something bigger than ourselves. And in this book, meaningful work. Sean talks about how he did that. And then he's really generous in terms of the step-by-step ways that he made that, brought that to life and how he suggests that we would do so as well if we want, in whatever aspects we want to apply in our own life, in our own business, and in our own leadership. Just quick background for you. In 2005, Sean Eskinosi left behind a highly successful career as a criminal defense lawyer. I forget off the top of my head, I think he was 20 years as a lawyer. Um, very successful. And he essentially went on a five-year mission, a five-year uh, trek to figure out what he's going to do next. And he ended up starting a chocolate factory, which is known as a bean-to-bar chocolate factory. We'll talk more about that later. And this is, which became Askinosi Chocolate, and it's a small-batch, award-winning chocolate factory that sources 100% of their beans directly from farmers, typically farmers in third-world countries. It's been highly successful. It was named by Forbes as one of the 25 best small companies in America. And the business model has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and numerous other media. 
Sean Eskinosi, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thanks for having me. I look forward to talking with you. Sean, Eskinosi is a chocolate company selling very high quality, pretty darn expensive chocolate. It's all about chocolate, and yet it's not about chocolate. <laughs> Besides making and selling chocolate, what else do you do? We work with students. That's one thing. We work with neighborhood students and students in Tanzania and the Philippines. Uh, we get, engage them in a program called Chocolate University. The other thing that we do, or another vocation, if you will, is working with farmers. We work directly with farmers. We pay them directly, and we think that that influences the quality of the chocolate. So I could say that our vocations of working with farmers and students supports our vocation of making the best-tasting direct-trade chocolate that we can make, and that then supports these vocations of working with students and farmers. It's a circle, and all of those things depend on each other. Sean, how is the model, the business model for Eskinosi Chocolate different from other organizations and companies that have become well-known in the last decade or two for being purpose-driven or mission-driven. For example, Tom's Shoes started in 2006 that has this one-to-one giving model. My belief in the way we try and aspire to run our chocolate business, and, and frankly, I think is a more, a more sustainable um, platform but not as easy to explain, you know, one for one. And that is if you say, we're going to no longer subscribe to this dualism of capitalism that really has existed, especially in Western forms of capitalism for the last 100 years. And that is to take philanthropy or charitable giving or charitable work and silo it over here and put the philanthropy people that worked for the company over here. And it really started with lawyers, God forbid, um, <laughs> when because they were that's where the risk managers were. And risk management turned into corporate social responsibility um, and filled with a, departments with a bunch of lawyers. So then, then, of course, the other main parts of the business, that is making money, making the thing, providing the service, are over here. What I'm saying is, Let's just twist and tie those things together. Let's make those departments inseparable from each other as best we can and just let them infuse each other so that the profit-making part of the business and the, the making and selling and producing bookkeeping part of the business is literally melded together with the philanthropic or good works parts of the business so that you really can't distinguish between the two. That's... I think, and see, that just took me like a minute to explain. I used to lay awake at night when Tom Shoes came out. I went to go hear him speak here locally and everything, and I was so depressed back in the early days that I couldn't come up with a really cool tagline. Yeah. I literally, I, I mean, I didn't yeah. like start taking any antidepressants over it, but <laughs> it did, it really caught me for a long time. But I don't have a tagline. I can't explain it quickly. But anyway, but thanks for that question, because I really, I believe that very strongly. Well, you do use that phrase, I think it's like direct to bean, or bean to bar, and which uh, I had never heard before reading the book, and it gets to the idea of it being a direct trade business. And so I, tell people about how you, you look at your whole supply chain as opportunities both for quality, but uh, as well as for mission and purpose. The I was just in Ecuador last week working with 
two of our farmer groups, one in the Amazon, the other in northern Ecuador near Guayaquil. And uh, the farmer near Guayaquil, I've been buying from him for almost 13 years, the same farmer. Just two years, no, last year, we helped him become an exporter so that he is not just a farmer, but he's now an exporter of record. Uh, The farmer group in the Amazon is a newer group for us, but the idea really is, can we can we establish not just a relationship with these farmers, but can we pay them directly, put money in their bank account, these small cooperatives, um, which is is reducing the the really Byzantine supply chain that's been set up for cocoa for many years, centuries. And can we then put more money in the farmer's pocket than they might otherwise receive? Can we visit the place every year to check on things and to further deepen our relationship with them, but also to check on the cocoa beans, which I did last week, you know, are these beans going to be good and, and what other little quality things can we do to make them better or what can I learn from the farmers so I can apply it in other locations that I go and travel to buy cocoa beans. And this, this is, it's not only about reducing the supply chain. It's about reducing or minimizing the supply chain in a way that makes sense and in a way that makes sense for us to be able to then link that story to people who want to buy the chocolate and who care about where it comes from. And that's, we're, we're just kind of doing what we can to meet in the middle so that those people can learn more about each other, the farmers, about the consumers and vice versa. So I could go to the grocery store and buy a $1 chocolate bar, or I could um, search out these uh, these handful of relatively small number of places where I can buy Eskenosi chocolate and spend $5, $10 or more for a bar. And when I taste the difference, it's it's very high quality chocolate. Uh, but it also, I can, I can know that I'm making a difference to a single family in South America or in Africa, uh, as well as to the local community there through the, the efforts that you're working on with the students and with the women and the, uh, just the economic environment that they're, that they're uh, raising their families in. That's right. And, you know, the, we like to say that this $10 chocolate bar is a greater value than the $1 chocolate bar because of what you just said, because of what you articulated, it it really is a greater value. Now, it requires some work on your part though to look for us, as you said, not only to look for us, but then to, to look us up and say, well, what are, what are these people about? And what do they do? I think that what you just described is, is a, small slice of what's happening in our world in terms of informed and educated buyers, consumers, customers. And we're seeing this this model repeat itself over and over, not just in food, but really in all areas, because we can. It's not that it requires some effort on your part to look us up, but not a lot of effort for you to look us up and see, hey, are these people doing what they say they're going to do? What can I learn about them to make a, a decision that will, as you said, impact the lives 
not a ton of lives. I'm not trying to say that. I mean, we're, we only have 16 employees <laughs> Yeah. and it's, and it's these farmer groups that we work with are, are small, but it's, it's, it is making a difference in a small way. And that's who we are. That's what we're trying to be. Yeah. I love in the book, at some point you say something like, we're not really, we're not trying to save the world. I can't save the world, but I can be uh, a small lamp of light. I can, I can be a one example of love in the world. That's right. That's right. And I get that from the, 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 the sort of metaphor there of the lamp and these words that you just said from a Catholic theologian named Jean Vanier, who's now, I think, 87. And he is the person, a French-Canadian, who founded the L'Arche movement in France in 1967. And he, um, the, the L'Arche uh, movement is for these tiny communities um, where people with intellectual disabilities live in community with those who don't. And so he, he's a theologian, but he also is very involved with these communities. And, and I, I love the way he puts that because it kind of made me breathe a sigh of relief, like, oh, whew, okay, I don't have to save the world. You know, I can just, <laughs> can I, and, and, and he gets it, of course, from Gandhi, who got it from, I mean, what, who knows, fill in the blank, but, you know, that the, 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 the idea that not only can I not save the world, I don't want to save the world, and in true sustainable fashion, that, I need to change me, I need to change my heart, and if I can do that, over my lifetime and behave in such a way that reflects that, then I'm really, that's, that is what sustainability really is. That that's, it's harder. It really is. I mean, it is. And we teach this to our students um, who travel with us to Tanzania, how really hard this idea of changing our own heart is. It's about as hard as it gets actually. I want to come back to the sustainability topic a little bit later. Um, but first, I want to talk about vocation. The, a key focus in the book is finding your calling, and you use the word vocation a lot. What does that mean to you? I like, I mean, as you said, it's calling. I, I believe it's a substitute for calling, and people often in the West associate uh, vocation with a religious connotation. I'm not Catholic, but of course, it, it's a very Catholic word. And, and it, it, people even say that if you have a vocation, or even they're even referred to as a noun. So in other words, monks would say, we have three vocations. They mean three priests. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's, it's a very, it has a lot of that connotation to it. But it's all, even though I'm not Catholic, I'm very drawn to it because even though I think just looking at it on the outside to call um, to be called. Um, I think that I like the fact that it has these sort of other deeper connotations to it, even though I'm not using it in a religious sense. Um, and so that's what I mean by it. And to me, I, I like that word um, in the, in the context that we're talking about now, you're calling as a, as, as your life and the calling um, as it relates to your business. I'm not Catholic either, but I, I was raised Catholic, and, um, and, and it pains my parents greatly whenever I say <laughs> I'm not Catholic. But <laughs> mm-hmm. when I was growing up, there was definitely this sense that the, the vocations were to be a priest, to be a nun, to be a monk. 
Um, although we, nobody ever knew any monks, we just knew there was a thing out there. So priests and mm-hmm. nuns, basically. But yet, even then, we were being taught that we should be thinking of our of a vocation broader than that. There was a sense of a, the laity, the non-clergy also had a vocation, a calling, a calling from God, um, or, you know, non-religious people nowadays might say, it's just an, the recognition that we're, there's more to us, that uh, some sort of calling that's uh, beyond just us. And I thought it was um, a really, I love the way that you even in the book took it beyond that, this just sense of, of calling uh, and talked about it, something that was helping us become a truer and better version of ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, I also think it's important to note that um, for us, our vocation doesn't, it's not something that must be set in stone and never change. My vocation was to be a lawyer for 20 years and then I needed to transition to the new vocation and I needed to find it. So I think it's important to make this sort of footnote that um, I believe we can, depending on where we are, where we are in our, in our lives, we can move toward and be gravitated toward um, another expression of our vocation in our business life, which often when we look back and reflect, it's really not going to be that much, even though we may be in a completely different business, offer a different service altogether, it probably will have roots in our own personal vocation, in our life vocation, although it's expressed differently in the business that we are now in, whatever that may be. But I think that when we spend all this time at work, which like supposedly if you live long enough, 80,000 hours or whatever, I mean, we might as well find ways to, to bring in to our work day facets of our personal vocation so that the day is better, more joyful, more productive, maybe more service oriented. And is there a way that we can come together as a group, a team, or even the whole company to share parts of this, to make it a collective vocation, a collective calling for the business itself as an entity. And I think that's possible. And when it happens, whether it's for the entrepreneur, the leader, or just people who are in the company, I believe that there are moments, and I'm not suggesting that this happens every day or even once a week, but there are moments in which we can glimpse this, we get just a, just a, a, a glimpse of reality, not what we're experiencing today, but I mean true reality, otherwise known as the divine, I think. And if you have another religion, it could be expressed another way. And in that moment, we then recognize our true self. That's really us. That's, that's I believe, that's our soul, that's who God created us to be. And so we have a chance to see that. And then when we see it, we have the opportunity to say, oh, wow, I just saw that. I saw that at work. How does, what does that mean? How, how do I then treasure that moment? And how does, it, how does the, 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 the sanctity almost really of that moment then express itself in other parts of my work life? And it does. It's natural. It happens organically. The title of your book is Meaningful Work. And 
I'm curious as to how a meaningful work can help us discover that authentic self, both our personal self and maybe, you know, the self that we can bring professionally. The, I think that your question, I think, um, one of the things I would say is that it depends on who you are to begin with. So it depends on who you are and it depends on where you are in the workplace. Are you a leader? Are you the leader? Are you part of a work group? And, but there's this book that I, or an author I quote in the book, Father Charles Cummings, who wrote this book called Monastic Practices. And I love what he said about the, the joy and the meaning that we get from our work is not from the title of our job, but it's from the dignity that we bring to the task. Now, that's easy for me to say as an entrepreneur, you know, I mean, I'm not, you know, a server waiting tables. But I say it in as much humility as I can say that the server waiting tables has within him or her the prospect and the possibility to bring great dignity to that task and might very well be more fulfilled waiting tables serving people than the CEO of fill-in-the-blank company that might even be doing what we look outwardly and see as good works. Well, how could that be? It's because of what I said in the beginning, that the dignity of the person to begin with is what is what brings joy to the to the task and not the label that we put on it. And so I think that, I mean, I could, you know, depending on how much time you have and where you want to go, I mean, Stories, I think, are the best way to express this um, notion of true self at work because um, that's how they the, – the, these ideas, these opportunities or the moments of true self at work are not – they're not in an outline or in bullet points or in seven steps to – I mean, it's it's a thing that happens to us that we then recognize, holy crap, what was that that just happened? That's what it is. Yeah, and you, you didn't necessarily use these words, but at several points in the book, you touch on the joy and perhaps uh, responsibility as leaders and business, business leaders and entrepreneurs to provide those moments, help our team discover those moments too, discover their calling, discover their authentic self. But yeah, if you have a story to share, I'd love to hear it. Well... The um, well, let me, if I could, just say as to what you what something you just said, I feel like is critical, and that is we do have a responsibility as leaders to bring this to our teams and to bring this to our colleagues. Because guess what? If we don't do it, something is going to happen really bad to our economy and to our products and to capitalism as we know it. And I don't think I'm being overly dramatic. I mean, Gallup says, and I quote this in the book, that one in three employees in America is engaged. In their work. So, I mean, gosh, gee whiz. I mean, we have to do something. We have to do something to turn the tide on this because it's ultimately going to that disengagement. That is the two thirds that are not engaged, don't care about their work. Well, um, that's going to find its way into our product and services. And it's also going to mean that people won't want to come to work for us. They won't want to come to work for our companies. And ultimately, it will really, um, it will wound and maybe an irreparable wound to capitalism, which maybe is good, but we need, we need to, 
we, we've, we have a lot of work to do. And so, but to your question about a story, what I, what I, the story that I, that I tell in the book and I, I, I think maybe perhaps is maybe one of the most meaningful things that happened to me um, so far in my job doing this work for 13 years, almost 13, is we take local high school students to Tanzania, and these are really bright kids, but they're in some cases poor, um, and they, they don't have the money, and so we raise money to bring these kids. And we we go on this long trip. It takes 55 hours to get to where we're going to this village in Tanzania. And I tell the students, hey, when we get to London, be careful crossing the street because you're going to get hit by a car if you look, don't watch it. Look the other so, direction than exactly, you're used to looking. <laughs> exactly. And so then, but I explain to them, look, when you get to Dar es Salaam, your, your senses will be completely engaged. We'll take a puddle jumper over across Tanzania. We'll get in a little van thing. We'll ride for another six hours. And when you get to this place where we stay overnight, nothing will seem like Springfield, Missouri. I mean, it is not, you are, you're tired. The next morning we get up and we take the, our little van and the kids are, you know, they're jet lagged and we ride out this little dusty road to go to this little high school where we have a chocolate university relationship. We, we, that's a program we have to engage kids, Chocolate University. And, um, and so we're pulling up and all of these kids from this high school in Tanzania out in the middle of nowhere are coming down the lane, the little dirt road to greet us, like a thousand of them. And our, we have like 20 people on our little van and they're singing this song in English that says, we are happy to be together. We are happy to be together. That's it. I'm taking a little video, the kids get off the van, and they just envelop our group. And the thing about it is, um, when you go to visit your relatives over Thanksgiving or Christmas, and they come out to greet you on the driveway, you have a warm feeling. You think, hmm, they're happy to see me. I, I think they really, truly are glad I'm here. Well, multiply that times a thousand, and it's just like this overwhelming sense of hospitality. So I get off the van, I stop my video, because I wanted to be in this group too, and not a dry eye in our group. Everybody was tearful, including me, and I've been to Africa many times, traveled all over the world. Well, why is that? It's because we we are not built to take that kind of, that blanket of hospitality. We're just not built for it, and it just kind of crumples us. So when I looked back on that video over the years, I've thought to myself, well, that's what heaven's going to be like. You know, I'm going to get off a van and I hope some people will be there to (laughs) say they're happy to see me or something like that. Then I thought, no, as I looked and reflected more on that experience, I thought, no, it's not what heaven's going to be like. It was heaven for me and for someone of another faith. Maybe it was some other expression of the divine or an expression of my true self just in that moment. And I, I don't even really, it's hard to even, it's ineffable. It's hard to put into words because I, I say that it's one of those moments that kind of points me back home. It, and, and another way of saying my true self in that moment, I mean, I, I, my business could fall in a hole tomorrow. I mean, we have sinkholes around Missouri. It could fall into a hole. My my business could fail. You know, we don't have a lot of savings or a big line, big line of credit or anything, but that is never going to go away from me. I'll always have that moment, and I'll know that at work, I had the chance to see heaven. 
and that's one of the best stories that I can tell about it. And and it doesn't have to be in Tanzania. You know, we all can have these kind of experiences, and we might as well, man. We're here. We're at work for a long time. Yeah, you shared in the book uh, an employee right there in Springfield at the chocolate factory who wrote you this wonderful note saying something to the effect of, you know, if this all ends tomorrow, it will have been worth it. Everything we've gone through has been worth it. It's been an incredible ride. Yeah. And I tell you, you know, those, again, and thanks for bringing that up, that's another example of what I mean when, you know, the day is hard enough. I mean, for us entrepreneurs that are just slogging through and trying to make it and trying to do the right thing and, and solving HR problems and solving manufacturing problems or service delivery problems. And so I just believe with everything that I have that it's possible, regardless of how much stress is in our daily business life, it's possible for us to create these moments of joy and gratitude that sounds a lot like Oprah. I'm not trying to go all Oprah, I should, that's, but but you know what I mean. It's there. We can. We can do it. And it's not about money or numbers of employees. It, that's not what it's about. The you mentioned engagement, engaging employees, and that's obviously a, a very important strategic need that many companies are focusing on. You look at it as a combination. There's this aspect of of uh, dignity and meaningful work, uh, which is sort of wrapped up in vocation, as well as this idea of kinship. Uh, so maybe can you talk a little bit more about your what you think about engagement and, and those ideas? Yes. And kinship, um, I love that word. And we actually have a chief kinship officer um, here um, who works for us part-time. And she's also the executive director of our Chocolate University program. But I get this notion of kinship from Father Greg Boyle, who is a Jesuit priest that founded Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, and he he has worked and lived among gang members in L.A. for over 30 years, and he talks about kinship. And the reason I love this notion of kinship is because uh, um, in the periphery of kinship, or really kinship is in the periphery of compassion, it's it's another expression of compassion. And compassion in the context of what we're talking about is I am not the great provider of money for farmers for cocoa beans and they are the recipients or I'm the service provider and they're the service recipient. What it means is, is that we have this shared need for each other and we express that through ways of compassion and the same is true for employees so that I don't feel like I'm preaching to them from on high that I give them if they, if they want it, an opportunity to express compassion or to express themselves in the, in the, in the ideas of kinship with each other or in the work that we do with schools and farmers and those kinds of things. Just this morning, literally two hours ago, half of the people were gone and they were in the fifth grade classroom three blocks away doing something called heart mapping. Did I tell them to clock out or those are your service hours for the week? No, (laughs) it's just part of what we do. Them working with fifth graders is every bit as important as making the next chocolate bar. 
because it's who we are. And so I think if we can offer, if we can, this goes, this really goes back to what I was saying about this notion of duality between philanthropy or charitable giving and profit making centers of the company. If we can go back and begin to kind of experiment in ways in which we can um, intertwine those together, then I think it becomes easier for our, for employees to become engaged in some of those activities that don't seem like profit-making activities, like going to the elementary school to work with kids on heart mapping. And so, I, but I believe that, um, like I said, if we don't offer these opportunities of kinship at work, then we're going to be really sorry because of the state of affairs 50 years from now or less. And it's, well, why? Because what's the opposite of this? The opposite is indifference. And indifference, as expressed in our products and services, well, I quote in the book a lot, Khalil Gibran, and he said, if you bake a bread with indifference, you bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger. Isn't that true? It's true for chocolate. It's true for if you're, you know, H&R Block preparing people's taxes. It's it's, It's true for everything. So we've got to find a way to give employees an opportunity to express the opposite of indifference. How do you define kinship in a work setting among employees or among your supply chain? Well, in the supply chain, it's, it's much easier, I think, because we're not constrained by sort of Western notions of friendship and relationship as it relates to suppliers and producers and farmers. And so, for us, I mean, we express kinship with farmers just by listening to them, by being open to the farmers and members of their community um, being teachers and us being students, re- despite their age. We're ready for that. We're ready for the juxtaposition to be students. That's so. That's what I mean. And when it comes to suppliers and farmers, and but when it comes to employees. That um, is, a, it depends, I think it depends on the company, it depends on the culture. So, for example, um, it could be how we celebrate work anniversaries. for example, is another way we express kinship when we, when we have work anniversaries. Or if um, one, of the, one of our coworkers is sick or has a spouse that is sick or um, suffering from a terminal illness, for example, there's opportunities in which we can rally around that person and that family as best we can and provide kinship for them. And so it's not, um, and, but we have to be careful that we don't superimpose, um, you know, some weird stuff on people that it's like a cultish thing, or we have to meet people where they are and give them, even in a small, really like ours, 16 people, you would say, oh, well, it's easy to have kinship when it, well, I mean, there are challenges for kinship, even if it's a family business, which mine is, and I think yours might be too. And, um, you know, that presents its own challenges of kinship. So I just think it's important that we think about these things, that we give a great deal of consideration about kinship at work um, and how that may be expressed. However you, however you think that kinship is expressed at work is going to be more kinship than you had 
two weeks ago because you've given some thought to it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, just as one practical example of, of encouraging kinship or building kinship, go ahead and tell us how you do work anniversaries. Sure. The work anniversary thing is we have um, staff huddles here where everybody, because we practice open book management, right now we're in an every other week um, staff huddle. Everybody stops what they're doing. Everybody's here. We go through all of our reports, open book management, talking about the numbers of our company and what they mean, you know, the financials and all of that. But when it's someone's work anniversary, they come to the front of the room, they sit down, and person by person will look at the person sitting there and they will say what they love, admire, or respect about that person. And the person just sits there. They don't have to say anything. They don't say anything usually. And person by person, I mean, you don't have to say I love you, but some people say (laughs) what I love about you, or I love that you, this, or I really admire. And they just look right at them. And I'll tell you, I mean, I've been doing this for many years. There are a lot of tears in, in those moments um, because we're not used to hearing those kind of um, direct appreciations for who we are as a person and who we how we behave at work. And that's a very, very powerful thing um, that I think people like here. Um, now, we asked people that we had someone not too long ago who didn't want to do it. I didn't force the person to – she was too uncomfortable with it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Again, it's meeting people where they are, not taking something like that for granted. But it's a, that's a very, very powerful, cheap tool um, <laughs> that we've been using. And that's, I think, a way – it's just another way for people to understand how appreciated they are. And, and not just from people who are their seniors, but um, from their coworkers in the company. That's just one example. Has there been any issue of cynicism Maybe at that particular practice, like, well, this is obviously such an artificial uh, construct. We're just putting people down. Of course, they're going to say something nice out of us, and they probably just are trying to get something out of us. Um, you know what? No. Um, I, I think, and I think that's a great question, but I haven't experienced that. Um, but I'm also not going to say that over these years that I've done this, that every single person participates with the same level of enthusiasm or, um, but, um, there, but I have not experienced cynicism about that. And part of the reason I think is because, um, we thankfully don't have a lot of bickering in the company. I don't even really know how that works. Cause I mean, I've been, I mean, I ran a law firm before this and, I, I feel really fortunate that the group that I work with, I'm not going to say there aren't little tussles now and then between departments or whatever, but for the most part, the group really does have a deep respect for each other and what they do. And that comes out in these meetings. Hmm. And, um, and because and we're a very transparent company. I mean, we talk about a lot of things in these meetings. And so there's an expression of, there's already this context of transparency so this idea is not like cold water, you know, uh, because, again, and, and then that um, um, activity is another sort of extension of transparency in a way. But I could see how in some environments it might be um, taken as that and there would be some cynics. 
And and I would this is a good time for me to say too. Yes, we do all of this work. I mean, we're feeding a thousand kids a day right now in um, the Philippines, and we've been doing this. We've we funded now just over a million meals sustainably. And you know what? Not every single person in the company is is as into it as the next person. Hmm. And um, and I talk about that in the book too. About well, what do you do if not everybody is like on the bus, <laughs> you know, and and totally behind? And I I think it took me years to to not be kind of hostile about that. Mm. But I, I really think the place where I am now is a much healthier place, which is, that's fine. I, I want to, again, I'm, I, I need dissension on some things like that because I think it makes for, I think it makes for a better result when people are willing to even express how they feel about it. One thing I'm curious about, um, on the topic of visioning, you, mm-hmm. you've got, you have this passion and a skill set which you learned from um, Ari Weinzweig from Zingerman's, who mm-hmm. has also been a, a guest on this show. Um, do you do you actually do that for your employees? Help uh, them. I, I know you teach it a lot with students, but is that a process that you've also helped your employees with? Yes, um, we have over the years had the opportunity for those who want to do it for people to write their own vision. Um, what, picking the time frame, using that tool. Um, but it's interesting that you bring this up because one of the things that we were talking about last week was finding a way that we can delicately incorporate visioning in the, I don't want to say, well, kind of in the review process. So one of the things that our chief kinship officer is working on right now is how to more how to more formally incorporate that in a way that will not re- reveal things that they want to keep confidential but that will help them in their professional life even if it includes not working here mm. um, that's yeah. a delicate place to be <laughs> but I feel like this visioning tool is so powerful that we're missing an opportunity to help our employees dig deeper into their own professional lives um, as they aspire to something even better than what they might have here. So we're we're literally exploring that right now, because I and I and I think we're going to be able to come up with something that will fit. Yeah. I hope. Yeah, that's cool. And mm-hmm. for our listeners, this is. This is helping people identify that unique intersection of their talent, what the world needs, and their passion, at least in this moment in their, in their life. That's one aspect of visioning. But the, the, if I could pull the lens out a little bit, really the sort of macro view of, of visioning is that what we and I ask farmers to do this and students in Tanzania, and I did it last week in Ecuador – or the week before last in Ecuador, I did it last week for a nonprofit that I co-founded um, 17 years ago. It's a grief center it's for all the board of directors. But what the idea is, we say, put yourself in the future, agree upon some future time, 10 years, five years, three years in the future. And we're going to write down in the present tense what that future is going to look like. No bullet points, no outline. We're going to write a narrative story. We're going to take 20 minutes. You're going to write the whole time. And we are going to facilitate what 
that future would look like with details, with all the senses engaged. And uh, we, like I said, I mean, I've done this for everything from eighth graders on up <laughs> to farmers in rural Tanzania. So it could be your vision for this idea of finding your vocation or how your company can express its calling as you just described this intersection of talent, passion, and what the world needs. But it could also be something, it, you could write a vision for your marriage, which I've done. My wife and I wrote a vision for our marriage. Mm. So it could be, I mean, this, this is a powerful tool and I'm, I'm going to see Ari to, tomorrow. I'm going up there to speak at some Zing Train um, seminars. And, um, but anyone interested can read more about this tool through Ari's books. And that's cool that you've had him on the show because many of his books talk about this process of writing a vision. And he's, he's the master and my mentor. And uh, well, just for our listeners to know, if you ever can make it to Zingerman's Deli, it is one of the places that you can get Askenosi chocolate. Uh, it's a very fun place. I've taken friends and clients there. Uh, great place to go. But I did, yeah. until now, I didn't know that I could get your chocolate there. So that's really cool. Yeah. yeah, they've been customers since almost the beginning. And Ari has been very kind to us over the years. And as I said, has helped me. I mean, when I was in Ecuador two weeks ago, I called him in the middle of a visioning session with <laughs> farmers to get his opinion on something. <laughs> and so that was kind of surreal. Yeah. Him talking with the farmers and, but it was fun. And he's gracious with his time in that way to help out, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. He is a, he's a very generous, generous person. So on the topic of sustainability, um, I, of course you do, you do practice, um, ecological sustainability practices, but in terms of sustainability um, for you, your, your own energy and passion and um, work-life balance and so forth, and the sustainability of the, the purpose, the, the mission-oriented activities you're doing, um, I want to kind of go back to that issue. And in the story that you told about how you took students down and let them see these, these thousand students pouring out of the school. So to be clear for our listeners, those are two different student groups that you're working with. You've got students that are local in Springfield in the neighborhoods around your factory that you're, you're um, helping them. Um, and then you're, uh, you're doing after-school programs and feeding uh, nutritional programs with the thousand students in that school. Uh, and the obvious question in a third-world country the obvious question is, you know, wow, wouldn't it be nice to have uh, to, to do that with an, a second school with a thousand students and a third school with a thousand students? And I've been very impressed in your story and in your book at your ability to, not your ability, your willingness to take advice from your <laughs> advisors to put the brakes on some of that entrepreneurial enthusiasm and have more focus, have some appreciation for balance and sustainability. Yes, and that's been a real challenge for me, as especially um, because when an when a need and opportunity floats by my dashboard of life, as a as a motivated, driven person, I want to respond to that need. But especially as it relates to, let's say, good works, um, we have to be very careful that we don't good work ourselves into the grave. There are many uh, uh, many people who have 
labored under this myth that we need to do this one more thing or we can help this next thousand people even though it may destroy us in the process or our relationships or our families that somehow the trade-off is worth it and it really isn't because guess what um we're not these we're not the only person who can do this you know <laughs> i'm not the only guy that can engage students in east africa or person or man or woman i'm not and my spiritual director um, Father Cyprian has said, who's a monk at, at a, a Trappist monk at, at Assumption Abbey, has said to me, you know, to, as you say, pull back the brakes and really encouraged me very specifically, do not take on, I mean, it wasn't a command, but he said, you know, really think about not taking on another new school lunch program until you get this school lunch program that you're working on now up and running and sustainable to the point that they're able to do it on their own. And at first I was, I wasn't, I'm not gonna say I was defensive toward Father Cyprian, but I was a little bit hostile. I mean, I was in my mind, I'm thinking, who are you? You've been at the monastery for six years. What do you don't, you know, you can tell me about how to pray, but. And these are, and these are malnourished kids. You're, you're yes, telling me don't yes. feed a starving kid, huh? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's essentially what he was saying. But I also think that it has, if I, I think it requires to some degree, a practice of humility to some degree to say, okay, I am not you know, God's gift to the world. I mean, I'm, I can do this one thing. And as we talked about earlier in our conversation, can I even take this thing and just change me? Can I just transform my own heart and recognize in humility that not only is that enough, but it's awesome. I mean, it's the greatest accomplishment of a lifetime. And um, and then for others that we come in contact to witness that transformation or experience the expressions and manifestations of that transformation, that is sustainability. And, you know, I say in the book, and my daughter is the one who coined this phrase, that we don't want to necessarily get bigger, but we want to get better at staying small. And that is a discipline because culture says grow, scale big investors, venture capital, all of those things, culture, our families, our chambers of commerce, everybody tells us that. And so it is literally a practice of discipline, I think, to do what Father Supreme was advising me. You know, and the other thing he calls it is an impulse of instability. And we all suffer from that, especially now, because we are so distracted by all the beautiful things available to us online. You know, the paradox of choice is present in almost every moment of our day. And so if we can have this practice, this discipline of awareness that we don't have to scale for scale's sake, you know, and that there are other people who can help and can come in and assist, then I think we'll be a better world for it. In the end, I think. Yeah. And knowing the whole story makes me more excited about buying your chocolate because do I really don't want to be encouraging 
a dependence on these great white saviors from the U.S. And so the practice that you're taking to create a sustainable school program where eventually they are going to be able to run it on their own and keep kids from being malnourished, even after they've never heard of, at some point, if they've never heard yeah. of Eskenosi anymore. Yes, yes, thank you. That's what I, that's my hope. And thank you for raising that phrase, the great white savior, because I don't want to be that. I, 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 uh, just one more really quick story. There was, we, we, we raised money to build these two classrooms for this school near the co-op in Tanzania. And, uh, we they ended up they decided to take the money and build three classrooms. That's another story. We wish they hadn't done that, but they ran out of money and they wanted us to pay for the roof. And I was like, no, you know, I told you we'd raise this money. Our students helped raise the money. I'm not going to do it. Well, they found the money from some big, huge European chocolate company, and and um, I got an email from one of the leaders of that chocolate company just out of the blue. I didn't know the guy, and he said, hey, we solved your problem. We put a roof on the school, <laughs> and. By the way, here's a picture of your name and your company logo. We painted on the side of the school so you could get recognition for it. And it really made me mad. And I wrote him back and I was like, look, great for you for putting the roof on the school, (laughs) but paint over my name now because I don't want my name on that school. And that's what you were just saying. I hope in many ways that one day when we are no longer in this village, that they won't even know who I am other than there will be some elders in the village who are my friends mm-hmm. who remember me from that way. That's, that is my hope and my prayer because I don't want to be the great white savior. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're saving me. They're saving me and our students. One of our students wrote me a note when she came back on our last trip and she said, I realized that I need Tanzania more than Tanzania needs me. Hmm. This is from a 17 year old. That's what we're going for. Yeah. That's what we hope for. Yeah. Fantastic. So one, one real personal question I have is, um, what does Karen think about all this? Because your <laughs> wife, Karen, I, I'm reading this and like, wow, this, you're constantly traveling the, traveling the world to every year have a face to face with your partner farmers and um, what does she think about you being gone so much and working so hard at all this? The, there, there's been a sort of, um, it's, there's been a transition or I should say phases of her. It's funny you asked me that. Nobody else, nobody has ever asked me that besides <laughs> my spiritual director, besides, besides Father Cyprian. He asks me every single time I see him, what does Karen think about this? What does Karen <laughs> think about this? He's been asking me that for 18 years. Uh, so it's, it's funny that you would ask me. Well, uh, we've been married for 32 years and um, you know, when I was a trial lawyer and trying criminal cases, she was on the front row every single trial I had and, and really supported me emotionally in that. And, and, uh, but when I wanted to start the chocolate factory, she thought for maybe a minute I'd lost my mind. I, I wanted to quit this perfectly good law career. And, uh, it wasn't because of the money. Uh, I mean, I, I make a lot less money now as a chocolate maker, but it wasn't that. It was the stability of it. You know, she worried about it, and she really didn't want me to do it. And reflecting back, <clears throat> you know, I, I I don't think I was as good a husband in that sense that I could have been because I really was so hard charging and so motivated to do it that I discounted her beliefs on that. And now. 
you know, over the years, she's really, uh, she worked for us for a while. Um, her title, her unofficial title in the factory is director of common sense. Um, <laughs> and my daughter, Lauren, who co-authored the book with me is our chief marketing officer. And, um, and so, but you know, Karen will be with us in Tanzania when we take the students and she'll play an active mm-hmm. role and she has in other trips. And so, um, and she will probably start traveling a little bit more with me. She wants to go to Ecuador. And when I go, I'm not gone for a really long time, especially now, because I've become so efficient um, at what to do when I'm there and how to solve problems quickly so I don't have to be gone from home too long. But, you know, this is a great question, Jesse. And I know, I mean, we could probably talk for another hour about this. And that is, you talk about work-life balance. I don't even really know what that is. I don't even know what it means. Because, but I, I, I also think too that we can get caught in that trap, because I think that that we, I think at least for me, I find greater um, awareness of how I am in the present moment by just doing that, by just practicing the present moment when I'm at home, or with my family, or with friends. And that is an aspiration. I am not great at this. And um, so it's, it's, it's something that, you know, I, I am weak. I am weak in that thing that we're now talking about because, um, well, I just am. And I need to get better at it. And it's something that I'm very mindful of. And so if, if I'm mindful of it, then I can be and am better at um, expressing it because she has been a big, so, I mean, she put me through law school and, you know, so, um, I'm hoping that in the coming years and days, you know, that I can, um, express that better. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, I appreciate your openness on that. It's, it's an, it's challenging and inspiring to me personally, and probably to a lot of our listeners. Well, thanks for saying it, but I mean, it's, it's one thing, like I was saying to be mindful of it, but, I, I do think that in the spirit of entrepreneurship that um, we need a sort of holistic approach in our lives that includes every facet of our life. And if any piece is slightly out of balance, and I don't mean in work-life balance, it could be anything. It could be a friend. It could be a, a, a family member, a parent or grandparent or child. And if there's something out of balance that we need to address it, we can't gloss over it because it will end up um, being hurtful to them and to us. And if we can take the time to address it, then I believe that the world will be better and our families will be better. Our relationships will be better. And ultimately, yes, our business lives will be better as well. I don't mean more money. I just mean more joyful and peaceful, I think. A better quality of life, essentially. Yes, yes, yes. Sean, another thing that I'm really interested in is the topic of open book management. Um, you're a believer in that. You share your books with employees as well as with the, your partner farmers. And I understand the the philosophy there of, of the more they understand how the business works, the more they can support it and see their role in it. And um, But I'm curious... How are you even including sharing everybody's salaries and like even up to your own personal compensation or where where do you 
where do you decide what to share? I've been practicing open book management for a little over 20 years. Uh, so I, I did that in my law firm and Mm. I, So I've done this in a service context and now in a manufacturing context. And this question always comes up. It's one of the first questions that they're (laughs) like, wait, is everybody going to know what everybody, no, the, 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 the labor number and the salary numbers are all rolled into one big number and it's open book management, um, is defined in that way as transparency for the company numbers, you know, revenues, expenses, net income, cash flow, debt, those sort of things, and what they mean, uh, what they mean in everyday life, what they mean in purchasing power, what they mean in how bonuses and salaries as a, um, as a line item. But they don't mean that we will know what each other is making. And <clears throat> it's one of the great um, obstacles that many entrepreneurs have when they are considering rolling out an open book plan, and uh, but no, they don't. Th- that's not something. That's not something that is shared, um, and and it's really never come up. Hmm. Is there a resource that you would point a, a leader or entrepreneur toward to get an idea for how to do open book management? Well, I think one of the great resources is um, Zingerman's um, Zing Train. Um, and Ari Weinzweig are not only practitioners of open book management, but they teach it and they teach it in seminars all of the time. And, um, another one would be, um, the great game of business, which is in my hometown and they, um, teach open book management. And there are many ways that entrepreneurs and business leaders can sort of dip their toe in the pool to see if it's something that they might enjoy and might like to bring into their company. And, um, but for me, it's, it's really just, I've been doing it for so long. Um, but I don't know everything there is to know about it. There's always more to learn. And, but the big thing for us now is, is opening our books to farmers. So when we're this summer, when we'll be in Tanzania, our financials will be in Swahili. Mm-hmm. As they have been every year that we've been going there since 2010. Wow. Um, my my the financials were in Spanish last week in in Ecuador, and uh, we we have profit shared on every single um, bean purchase that we've made since we started the company. And last year we literally published on our website something called a transparency report, which doesn't have a bunch of fancy graphics, but it's a spreadsheet showing every bean buy that we've ever made how much it was, how it compares to the world market price, how it compares to the fair trade price, how much profit share there was, and um, how, how many of those contracts did we pay in advance? So the farmers, we were financing for them at 0% interest. And all of it is there for people to, to see. And it was audited by a Drury University um, audit class, accounting class. And so um, those things are really important to us. And I don't, I don't share profits with farmers because of some, it's not like sharing profits in the United States. So I don't suffer from this kind of Western view of if I do the, if I do this for you employee, are you going to do that for me? There's no quid pro quo. Mm. I mean, I've been sharing profits with farmers for 10 years and really I do it because it's the right thing to do. I cannot really point to you. I don't even know if I could say, do we get a better quality bean because we profit share? 
I would probably, I'd like to think that, but even after 10 years, I mean, I think we get good quality beans because of a lot of other things that go into that recipe, but, uh, that, that we do for farmers, but, um, it's a, yeah. So I'm, I'm not um, going to Americanize that, you know, and say, Oh, well it, it's, but I, I will say it's pretty cool though. I mean, I, and my daughter and I, it's one of the things we both really love and to be able to hand a big stack of shillings to farmers and in a ceremony and let them figure out what they want to do with the money. <laughs> you know? That's a lot of fun. You guys really care about everybody in your supply chain, your employees, your profit farmers and, and everybody having dignity in their work, having uh, a, a decent lifestyle and uh, being able to feed their families and so forth. And so, yeah, that, that comes across in a lot of ways and, and profit sharing is probably just one, it's just consistent with everything else you do. Yeah, it is. It's just one, it's one thing. I mean, making sure like just last month, well, starting May 1st, we were able to offer group health insurance. That was a big deal. I mean, I've been thinking about this for 10 years and mm. trying to find a way to do it. And finally, through our Chamber of Commerce, a vehicle became available and we went through the application process. And it's one of the great moments to me in this business to be able to have this option. You know, it's so these are. Yeah, these yeah, are it's all. You know, thank you. Yeah, it's a big deal. Really big deal. Now, it depends. We'll see how long it lasts that <laughs> that, you know, the premiums go up like crazy so next yeah. year you know they're probably gonna who knows but at least for now <laughs> everybody knows that this is a year-by-year -year deal so yeah i mean it, it'll be hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube but yeah <laughs> we're, we're hoping that we don't have to do that well for the sake of our listeners who maybe were scrambling trying to take notes on uh the references that you mentioned regarding open book management uh we will provide links to all those in our show notes for this as well as just where folks can get their hands on your book meaningful work and uh your chocolate can you tell us how folks can can do that as long as they're we got them their attention right now sure yeah thank you well askanosi.com is our website and people can go on the website and order online and we ship all over the country and we do we do it all here we ship it ourselves we make it ourselves we're really careful about temperatures we ship chocolate even when it's hot um, the other thing you could do is go on our website and there's a zip code locator to see if there's a store near you that carries our chocolate. We sell to specialty food stores, usually smaller ones around the country. Um, so that is a way to do it. And uh, as for the book, people can get that on our website or on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Indie Read. Um, there's a number of ways that people can get just by searching my name and meaningful work. Um, and that will find it. And is there any social media that you're, that you're active on? Well, I, I quit personal Facebook and Instagram in January, which is, that's a, another topic um, for us to discuss someday, <laughs> but um, that's been kind of hard. But so my company though has askanosi.chocolate on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And um, I am only on LinkedIn now. And so I, I'm Sean Askinosi. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn and, and uh, I use that. And I have a blog that I try to write on once a week, um, seanaskinosi.com. And that's really a place where I'm trying to write about things that really all of the things we've talked about today are things that I'm writing about trying to touch on on my blog and um, that are sort of ancillary to the book and um, these ideas of meaningful work. Yeah, so that's the best way. 
Well, the <clears throat> book again is Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. It's a great story, first and foremost. Um, but Sean is very generous in terms of just breaking down all the steps that he took and, and uh, providing ideas for us as leaders and entrepreneurs to take similar steps. So, Sean, thank you for writing the book and thanks for coming to, to just dip, give us a, a tiny bit of what's in the book on the show today on Engaging Leader. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your awesome questions. And thanks for asking about my wife. I really appreciate that. <laughs> All right, Engagers, as I said, we'll provide the information and links that Sean mentioned on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 177 as in episode 177. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, J.J. Leahy, our social media guru, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers. 